0: your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now let's turn it over to Fern Nieman.
1: Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferdinand here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Today, i got another guest for you, a special guest. He's actually a part of the law firm I work at, the MHP Law Firm and KC Real Estate Law. Excited to help have him come in today and tell us a little bit more about evictions. Evictions are uh, a necessary part of this industry. Uh, it's one that you don't want to screw up, so you want to get competent legal counsel. I've got a guy right down the hall that does that. Please help me welcome my guest, Ryan White. Ryan, thanks for coming on, man.
2: Thank you, Ferd. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, well, obviously I know you, but uh, some of our audience may not. So give me give, give a little more about your background. I know evictions is one of your practice but so Tell me a little more about your background, and, and then we'll jump into the topic.
2: Absolutely, yes. Thank you. I've practiced in and around the Kansas City area for the past thirteen years, uh, primarily business tax and litigation, but also a good practice in my. My practice has been in evictions, landlord, tenant, and the mobile home context in both the Missouri and Kansas side there. And over the course of the 13 years, I have been fortunate enough to develop some best practices, some that have been passed along to me from more experienced attorneys and some that I've stumbled upon by on my own through the School of Hard Knocks.
1: Go well, hard knocks. That's what you like to say. That's the tuition price. You don't want to pay more than once. And you, if you can get out with the small tuition price uh, the, the better there. So, you know, as they say, what experience experience comes from uh, good, or good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. So hopefully we, hopefully you learn from your mistakes or you learn from other people's mistakes, but evictions are one that an area that I don't pretend to practice in. Um, I've got one under my belt, um, ever the, uh, our local attorney was conflicted out because our resident had another criminal background and there were no other attorneys in this small town. So I had to drive there myself and do it. And I botched it, but, um, with one extension, we got the eviction. So I'm, I'm technically one and oh, but it was not a pretty victory. So today, you're going to tell us uh, how to do it right. So maybe give us a little bit about just the process. What's it look like, process, structure, and we'll go from there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, as you mentioned, evictions are an unsavory but a necessary component of um, mobile home park space and any type of rental Real estate asset classes. And I find that this is an actual opportunity to reestablish communications between the property manager, the property owner, and the tenant, with the ultimate hopes of avoiding uh, a judgment, avoiding having to go through the channels and the procedures of the court processes. But sometimes it is necessary to send the notice, to send the demand, to send the summons, to send the petition, to get uh, people's attention and to get something resolved here. But my my first and primary best practice for this area would be uh, sooner rather than later to reach out and try to establish communications. My best days when I come back from court after doing Uh, an evictions docket are when I've been able to settle every case through either a payment plan, a consent judgment, a stay of execution where you delay whatever the court would ultimately do anyway, by talking to the tenant out in the hall over the phone prior to court, by figuring out what the situation is, figuring out what can be done, getting some authority from your client, the property manager, and ultimately the property owner, and trying to get something (laughs) worked out prior to going to court. Uh, as, as you mentioned there, otherwise, you go through the court and you've got, you give statutory notices depending upon whether or not the default and whether or not the seeking possession of the premises is due to non-payment of rent holding over after the expiring of the otherwise term of the lease or for breaching the lease, rules and regulations or other criminal activity.
1: That's right. Now, what kind of notices are typically provided required in the distinctions if there's non-payment of rent or damages? I know there's there's differences. A lot of times in my business, I'm just looking to get possession and I don't really care about chasing them for the rest of the money because generally they don't have it. So what are those notices and then um, can you can you mail them? Can you post them? You know, is there is there a, a wrong way to do it? That's a great question. And I think uh, at, at the basic level,
2: I think uh, some of that is statutory. So I think anytime you're going to be engaging in a rental situation, a landlord tenant, a landowner, lot renter type arrangement, it is prudent to be familiar with the local ordinances, the local rules of the court, but also the state statutes pertaining to what notice is required. But also it goes back to the lease agreement. It is it is imperative from the very beginning to have A good lease agreement in place. And that's going to include terms such as obviously the location of the premises, the party's names and contact information for delivering notice. And you also want a forwarding address in there as well for expiration of the lease term should something come up afterwards. You need to get a hold of them. Obviously, your lease is going to have uh, maintenance uh, requirements, who takes care of the curtilage or the area surrounding uh, the manufactured home there, shared fees or expenses for utilities or common areas, rules and regulations, security deposits, and the like. But in the event that something goes awry with that lease after you've had it and, and I know you, uh, uh, through the mobile home park law firm, all offer uh, many lease packets for several different states that come highly recommended. In that, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and it's much tougher to cure a tough uh, a, a bad lease than it is to enforce a good one. So. Um, uh, but after that, uh, if, if there's if there's nothing going wrong, then it's actually tough to get out of a lease. Now, you can provide in the lease agreement that, you know, it can be terminable upon a certain uh, uh, number of days notice for any reason. But absent that, under the law, in order to terminate a lease agreement and obtain possession of the premises, the landlord must uh, establish that the tenant has failed to pay the rent. Um, as, as provided and due under the contract, under, under the lease agreement, and provided any grace periods under relevant local law there, or the tenant has defaulted a provision of the lease agreement that has uh, in, in implicates either uh, criminal uh, activity or violations of the rules and regulations under the lease agreement, or the tenant is a holdover tenant, meaning that their term has expired and that they're just transferred it to a month to month. Now, typically for most states, Missouri included, there's no notice requirement for mere non-payment of rent. For a landlord to proceed to seek possession of the premises and fault a breach of the lease agreement for mere non-payment of rent, there's not a notice requirement, but in my practice, I advise the best practice of sending notice anyway. Um, courts often have equitable powers and a legal, in addition to their legal jurisdiction. And they're going to give tenants uh, a, a, the benefit of the doubt. They're going to give them an, an abundance of caution before proceeding against what, what is uh, their residence and, and potentially homestead there. So I advise to give, give notices. But when you're giving a notice, it's important to be clear in the notice and to not create any additional rights in the notice. I've seen some courts... Uh, some courts have deemed that mere language in a notice can create an expectation on the part of the tenant that can justify further factual analysis of the court, can open the door to other discovery issues, and can create a forbearance or reliance issue that could be difficult for the landlord to overcome uh, at, at the hearing. So it's important for the notices to specify uh, specify a date certain. Um, and you're going to want to re- relate back to the lease agreement and provide reference to the exact Provision, paragraph, and section of the lease agreement that is alleged to have been violated. Uh, notices. Can I can
1: I, can I can I jump in on that because I want I want to point that out because I know that that's been an issue over the years where a lot of our clients and some of my own managers they'll just put a notice like you're evicted and I've had sometimes it's actually worked out conveniently where the person just moved out. And we're like, okay, that wasn't really the right process. Not that we could then argue they abandoned the lease. But what we think is, you know, best practices, the lease is clear. When you say don't give them additional rights or forbearance or other uh, remedies, just say, look, you owe $1,000. You must pay $1,000 within five days, 100% of it. No partial payment will be taken. You have breached the lease under section 2B where it says rent is due, period. And then we typically post it on their door, take a picture of it, provide it to the eviction attorney. And then also we use a rent manager for our property manager software, put a copy of it in the, on their tenant ledger, on their tenant file. And then they have access to that via their tenant web access. So then it's, it's crystal clear that they were given the notice because I've had issues where the judges like, they said they didn't get notice, And I'm like, well, they're here, right? How, how'd they notice show up at 10 o'clock on Tuesday? Oh, Right. So oftentimes you'll see tenants lie, try to get out of the eviction. So you got to make sure you you button up everything you can to not screw up the process.
2: That's that's absolutely right. And because and the notice periods can range anywhere from three days to five days to 10 days to 30 days to even 60 days. In some cases depending upon the reason for the default is going to be obviously shorter for mere non-payment of rent typically your 10-day notice periods are for violation of the lease provisions or violations of local law or criminal activity and your 30 to 60 day uh, notice provisions are in the event of holdover over tenants and for mobile home park uh, owners as well. And a lot of state statutes have acts that give mobile home park owners, uh, unit owners, more time uh, than would otherwise be allowed a, a an apartment tenant, given the difficult nature and the costly nature in relocating uh, a mobile home there. But please, as you please.
1: mentioned. Park let's talk. Let's talk about that for a second because I know I've had I've, almost every manager I've ever had has said, "Hey, we won the eviction. Do I get? Do I do I get to take the house now? Do I get to change the locks?" It's like, hold on, hold on. You know, if it's a park-owned home, yes, we own the. We get possession of the lot and the home, and it's our home. We can change the locks. That doesn't mean we get all their possessions and depends on the statute I've had it where you've got to put the possessions on the street for 48 hours and then they get rained on and other people can come take them and all that but we can't take possession of them. But the, the bigger challenge is when it's a tenant owned home. So if it's a tenant owned home, and I own the land and I get an eviction in the lot. Do I get that house.
2: That's that's a great question. And I've even gotten that question from clients before judgment. I've gotten that uh, question from clients uh, during the grace period uh, before late fees even accrue uh, under the lease. And and they ask, you know, they don't call it as such, but they're basically asking self-help repossession. They, they say, you know, Ryan, the tenant has already defaulted. The tenant is already in breach. It's clear. Uh, we have established payment procedures. They failed to make pa- uh, payment. We've given the required notice. Can we, can we mitigate our damages? Uh, can we stop the bleeding, in essence, by making it uncomfortable op- upon them? Can we, uh, in essence, effectuate a constructive if not an actual eviction uh, through the court, and and you're abs- you're absolutely right that that is that is not allowed. That is that can get uh, the landlord, that can get the property manager in trouble with the court, and can actually make them subject to fines and penalties uh, that, that are a factor of uh, the monthly rent that would otherwise be due and, and owing. So that's a good question. But so to be to
1: be so to be, so be, so be clear on that, to add to make sure everybody gets that you don't get the home. If it's 10 on home, you do not get the home. There's I got a whole other episode on abandoned titles and all that kind of jazz. Um, but you also can't do self-help remedies. Like you can't turn off the water. You can't turn off the electric. You can't just tow their car. If they, you know, are pending eviction, they still have rights to be there until the, until the court says otherwise.
2: Yes, absolutely right. And like you said, beyond this blocking and tackling episode, there are more detailed episodes uh, detailing the statutes that allow a landlord to deem the property and the home to be abandoned under certain uh, situations after the writ of execution or the writ of restoration that is that is delivered to the sheriff after the court enters a judgment has been executed upon and has been effectuated by the sheriff's office there so yes it can get very detailed convoluted timely uh, and and uh and costly and that's why I do believe an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and reaching out to the tenants and trying to establish a payment plan or some kind of, of, of remedy to avoid the situation.
1: Okay, so I interrupted you on your process there. But so the process is I give them the I give them notice and then and then what? I have to file with the court. And what, what do I need? What do you need from me as the property manager to get the victory in the court?
2: Absolutely absolutely right. Great question. So after the statutory notice to quit, notice for non-payment of rent is provided, depending upon what the breach was, then the landlord will need to file a verified petition with the local court there, the local state court uh, in the jurisdiction of the property. And that petition will need to allege the grounds for violation of lease agreement, non-payment holdover, Um, or unlawful detainer type action for breach of the lease agreement or breach of local laws. Uh, And then that petition will need to be served upon the tenant through a summons. And how that summons is delivered will determine, as you alluded to earlier, the recourse that's available to the landlord upon ultimate disposition by the court. So if the summons is delivered with the petition to the tenant by manner of posting only, meaning like you said, it's it's posted on the door there, a picture is taken and the private process server or the sheriff uh, verifies the same to the court, and then if, if the tenant does not appear at the court for the status conference or the trial, then the landlord can be entitled to a judgment for possession of the premises only. And that is not going to include a monetary judgment for any back-owned lot rent, utilities, uh, court costs, attorney's fees, and the like. But if that summons is delivered to the tenant by means of residential service, leaving it with an individual of suitable age and discretion, or personal service upon the actual individual tenant residing at the lot in question, then the landlord can seek redress from the court and can obtain relief in the form of not only possession of the premises, but also a monetary judgment for damages, rent, attorney's fees, if the state uh, allows it, and the like.
1: So that's if I give him personal service, that's not me actually saying, "Here you go, John. Here's your eviction letter," or, or is it? Or does it mean no? It's a process server that you know is a third party. Because how do I prove it if I? How do I prove it otherwise if it's not a third party?
2: That's a great question. That's a great nuance that isn't always spelled out clearly in the statutes. So the first notice, the first non-payment of rent notice to quit notice, is delivered by the property owner property manager or someone of, of, of in the employ of the uh, owner or operator of the property there. Now the second notice that it contains the summons and the actual is the notification of the court proceedings that have begun, that must be effectuated by either the local sheriff or a private process server who is engaged and approved by the court. Typically, court clerks help uh, direct to the most common used private process servers in a jurisdiction. And if you contact the private process server, they'll typically have forms uh, that the courts uh, have pre-approved in advance in order to appoint that process server to effectuate the notice, get the summons in the hands of the tenant, and get the clock ticking for the landlord to be able to obtain relief from the court and obtain possession of the premises.
1: So if if I'm the landlord and I need to get a process over, do I contact that person or do you find that person or does the court initiate that process?
2: That's a great question. The court will not initiate that process on your own. The court will automatically set a court date upon the filing of your petition. That court date is going to be a status conference. If you've obtained service upon the defendant-tenant by that status conference, then the court can either set the matter for trial or award the plaintiff-landlord their requested relief. Um, But the the court is not going to take any action in that regard. That is incumbent upon the landlord, or if the landlord has prudently engaged an attorney to represent them in the process, the landlord's attorney will effectuate that and line that up for them. The courts typically set the case over one time after the status conference, if the tenant has not been served, and they'll set it over for what's called an alias summons where another summons is issued uh, to a private process server to try to effectuate jurisdiction over the tenant so that the court can act on the case. But if it's not done after that second one, courts can often dismiss the matter for want of prosecution.
1: So what, what, what do I do when I can't find the person? That's a great and and, or and or and or what if there are other residents? I mean, I have it happen a lot where I'm I'm evicting John Smith, but it's really I do not even seen John for six months. He sold his house, and there's somebody else there that's the problem. How do I evict that person?
2: Yes, absolutely, and that's going to require a court process as well. Even though the individuals might not have a written lease or might not have an agreement to reside in the property, an abundance of caution and best practice would be to list them on the. Uh, on the foreclosure or the eviction paperwork, as a Jane Doe or a John Doe, there, uh, so that uh, any any unlawful uh, 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 residers or occupiers of the premises can be uh, served through posting, and then can be removed from the property upon ultimate resolution and disposition of the case. Um, now, if, if and. As we mentioned earlier, if you're just looking for possession of the premises, it is not as absolutely necessary to find the tenant defendant because you can just do the posting service on there to obtain relief from the court of possession of the premises. But if if the damages are warranted or if there are other lease violations that warrant tracking down the defendant for monetary uh, relief, then uh, we have engaged skip tracers in the past who can help track down individuals uh, through or other um, uh, software or, or databases to help determine uh, individuals' new locations in the event that you were not giving an accurate forwarding address in the lease agreement or on the notice to uh, vacate.
1: Okay, got it. So I, I, they get the notice, they show up to court. Then what happens? They, you know, they, do they get the chance to pay, and is it does that end the end the eviction, or can I just can I have the discretion to say no? I don't want their money. I just want them to be gone. How does that How does that work?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it often varies from state to state whether or not partial payments uh, can be accepted, should be accepted, or must be accepted. Oftentimes, it's the best practice in the event that any payment is tendered from the time of filing of the petition to the uh, trial date or to the court date, it's important to at least uh, consult consult uh, local rules, local laws to determine what is the best practice there, but also provide a reservation of rights notice to the, the tenant that their partial payment does not create any expectation of forbearance on the part of the landlord to delay or stop any eviction uh, proceedings Um um, but but yes, in uh, for mere non-payment of rent, if the tenant is able to tender the full amount prayed for and the full amount due under the lease, including the uh, rent amount and any other ancillary charges, then by law, the, uh, the lawsuit must be dropped and they are allowed to um, re- resume the lease, cure the lease default and breach in essence, uh, and reinstate the lease under its previous terms. But If the action by the landlord is not a rent in possession, but rather an unlawful detainer action by reason of breach of the lease agreement or breach of the law, then it is not curable. uh, absent the discretion of the uh, landlord to uh, waive and, and reinstate under whatever conditions. So I, negotiated.
1: so I went, I went to law school, but it was a long time ago. And I don't remember that much. So uh, law, unlawful detainer. Is that another, is that a fancy way of saying we're evicting them for something other than non-payment of money? Basically they yeah. broke, they broke a bunch of rules and we want, they, you know, they're dealing drugs. They got arrested for dealing drugs. And that's against presumably that's in my lease. You can't deal drugs. Uh, they can't cure that. If they show up with all the money, still can't they still can't keep possession.
2: Absolutely right. Yes. Rent and possession and unlawful detainer are both under the umbrella of evictions. And they often achieve the same end result of possession of the premises and payment of any monetary monetary, uh, damages or judgment amount, but they have very different procedures and rights and remedies for how to get there. They have very different notice requirements and they have very different rights with respect to the tenant. Whereas there is no right to a jury trial in a rent and possession action, there is a right to a jury trial if timely demanded and requested in an unlawful detainer action.
1: Yeah, that's one of my horror stories. Um, We had a guy, he, he came with the park and he was a sex offender and he was already there. We couldn't really easily get rid of him. We would not have likely approved him. And he was sleeping with the 16 year old girl down the street. So that girl's twin brother, came over and hit him over the head with a baseball bat 25 times um, and he lived and he got back out and now they were getting ready to fight each other some more. And then the guy, he was causing all kinds of problems. And he, his, his toilet was not hooked up to the sewer properly. So everything that went down the toilet was just flushing under the trailer. And eventually it was flushing into the street and the yards and the sidewalk and was making a big mess. So we evicted him, but because he was a sex offender, he'd been through court and he knew the process better than the average mobile home park resident who was not paying rent. And the judge said, dear John, are you, do you agree that you broke the following rules? And instead of saying yes or no, he said, I'd like a jury trial. And our eviction attorney who were paying like $300 fixed fee in the small town is like, uh, I don't know how to do those. And the judge is like, well, we're not really ready for a jury trial today. And the guy's like, well, I don't mind waiting. So he got like a 60 day continuance and he never showed up. He just bought himself 60 days to sell his home and move. So we eventually got rid of him, but he caused problems for another 60 days and then sold his home to another problem tenant for 500 bucks. Uh, a, prior, a prior manager of mine who we fired. So now I got a disgruntled former employee who also owns a rental home and I got no lot rent and they still didn't fix the sewer pipe. So uh, I learned the hard way that jury trials are actually an option in eviction cases,
2: yes, that is an advanced degree in the school of hard knocks, and, <laughs> yes. and, and certainly a trap for the unwary, for for the the good meaning and well intentioned. Uh, a landlord or property manager who is trying to do right by the other occupants and for the community and, and maintain a safe, a safe and respectable community there, and that that can be uh, uh, an obstacle—a well-intentioned and well-meaning obstacle that can can be used and abused by litigants who are un- unfortunately gaming the system.
1: All right. So what's the, so what's the next step in the process? Do I I get a I get a judgment and then I immediately drag them out of the house and go on my my merry way, or is, there, is that not allowed? About- well, that's,
2: that, that, that's a great question, and, and no is the short answer. But before that, getting the judgment uh, is not something to be overlooked either. Uh, the first court appearance is a status conference, and that's where the court uh, will call the case, determine if service has been effectuated by either posting, residential, or personal means. And then the court will ask the tenant whether or not they agree or disagree with the allegations of the landlord in the petition, If if there's a disagreement, the court will set the matter for a trial. And by statute, typically those trials have to be on an expedited time frame. Typically from the time of filing of the petition for eviction uh, to trial date uh, can be as short as two weeks to uh, a month or so, depending on the jurisdiction uh, caseload and court availability there. Um, But assuming the tenant shows up to the uh, first uh, a court appearance, the status conference. The court will then set the matter for trial, and at the trial will be the dispositive setting, wherein the landlords and landlord's attorney uh, must come to the trial with their exhibits, including their lease including their uh, uh, rent uh, rolls, the ledger uh, that, that must be verified as a business record that is kept and maintained in the ordinary course of business. That is a true and correct depiction of the activities, the debits and credits for the account, and it's timely maintained and updated. Um, by uh, the property manager uh, there so and it's important to have a witness uh, there who is of suitable discretion and experience doesn't have to be the, the primary property manager doesn't have to be the owner of the premises but it should be someone who's familiar with the operations of the property someone who's familiar with the lease agreement and say yes the default provision that it provides for award of attorneys fees is section 12 or something such. And
1: such. So I so I can't can't just send the attorney by themselves. I need to send. I need to go. I need to attend it myself, or have another property management person be there as the quote witness.
2: That's that's absolutely right. I've been unless
1: unless they don't show up, right? If they don't show up, then we just get default judgment.
2: Correct. If they don't, if the tenant does not show up having been properly served, then a default judgment uh, can be uh, entered, at whether or not the landlord as a as a suitable witness there or not. But if the landlord, if the landlord's attorney appears to court without a witness, the landlord will lose the case. Uh, I've been in that situation before, and, and that that puts extra impetus upon the need to talk to the tenant in advance and work out a consent judgment or a stay of execution. And that's why prior to going to court, if the actual decision maker is not gonna be at court, it's very important to get authority from that decision maker in advance of court so that you have discretion to be able to either abate some of the rent due, the amount due, give them a little bit extra time or find out what kind of payment plan terms the landlord would be willing to accept as well.
1: So let's let's say we agree on a payment plan. Let's say they owe us two thousand dollars. We agree on, you know, five hundred a month plus next month's lot run every month. What if they don't? What if they don't abide by those terms? Then I have to go back into court and and what is, is there an expedited timeline, or do I got to go through all the notice and all these other steps over and over again?
2: That's that's a great question, and oftentimes depends upon what the judge and the jurisdiction is willing to do. Uh, the landlord can, if upon an agreement reached regarding a payment plan and assuming that payment plan cannot be completed to cure the deficiency in rent by the actual trial date, the landlord is stuck in the position of either dismissing the action without prejudice, meaning that they can refile at a later time on the same fact pattern and the same allegations if this payment plan is not, uh, honored, um, Or uh, what sometimes some judges uh, will uh, allow is a consent judgment being entered by the court with a stay of execution. And that's basically a fancy uh, word for saying that the judgment is entered, the matter is disposed of on the merits um, so that there is no need for a future trial on these issues. Um, But uh, the judgment will not be effectuated through the writ of execution or a debtor's exam or garnishment or any of those post judgment remedies uh, under certain circumstances, uh, namely uh, uh, honoring the payment plan, uh, restoration of, of the property to the landlord and broom swept uh, a condition or uh, uh, Taken care it of it doesn't exist, <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. not gonna happen.
1: Yeah, uh, if you're not that good a lawyer. Yeah, not only yeah. They get you, not only get your possession, it's gonna be in broom swept condition. <laughs> you can move the next tenant right in, yeah, shoot for the moon. And yeah, know. I'm just looking for the furnace to still be there and the wiring to be intact. Yeah, that's yeah. a win.
2: Yeah, but but those are, those are the kind of things that can uh, can help make make it go a smoother uh, than going through the courts. And because uh, courts do have uh, a significant discretion in these areas, and in the mobile home context, it does get confusing to judges who are more accustomed to dealing with it in the part in the apartment context. And you know, whereas mobile homes, depending upon where you're at, they can be taxed as personal property or real property or, or whatnot. So there becomes questions about how to proceed in the instance, are they a shadow as personal property or is this a residential real estate type eviction? And I always uh, advise clients to err on the side of caution and treat it as a residential uh, real estate type eviction. And that needs to be reflected in the actual proposed journal entry of judgment that's brought to court as well. You know, it's good to be prepared in going to court with your evidence, your witness, your rent roll, your pictures of any damages. But at the end of the day, you want to have a form that you can present to the judge for the judge to sign and fill in the blanks with respect to uh, appearances by the defendant uh, and and any damages
1: awarded. So when you when you say journal entry, to me that I think of that that's that's basically the judge's decision. You just made it easy for him or her and said, hey, I've already drafted this, fill in the blanks and sign it, and then boom, you're good. That goes into the Court system and you you walk out of there with your your piece of paper that gets you the victory.
2: That's that's absolutely right, and it helps keep the matter moving timely, and it helps keep the the burden off of the judge and the judge's clerk and staff. There, oftentimes courts will have proposed journal entries and form journal entries of judgment that they prefer on their website, so it's important. Uh, if, if the local, if local counsel is unavailable in your jurisdiction for these matters, it is important to go onto the court's website and contact the court and see if they have heard form for disposition.
1: Got it. So once I get that judgment, how do I get, let's say the person doesn't leave, they're still in the house. Yeah, then, so what, I, then what I do, I get my biggest, strongest, meanest maintenance man, or do, <laughs> I, do I have to go back to some other process? Yeah,
2: you're, you're absolutely right. Even after the court process, even after you've gone to trial, even after the judge has adjudicated uh, that the plaintiff is entitled to possession of the premises, self-help restoration is still illegal. The landlord cannot unilaterally <laughs> take action to make the property uncomfortable, uh, to, to kick them out, to turn off services and the like. The, the, the method by which the court's judgment is effectuated depends Uh, from state to state, depending upon jurisdiction there as to the timeline required, but generally they're referred to as a writ of restitution or a writ of possession there. And that basically is, is the procedure by which the court's order of judgment, the journal entry of judgment there, is provided to the sheriff's offered office to be effectuated through this writ of restitution. It's typically 10 to 14 days after uh, the judge's determination, which is typically the time period for a potential appeal of the judge's determination, assuming that the tenant posts any required bond uh, for that appeal. Um, But uh, after that time frame, then the sheriff can come out and restore possession of the property to the landlord. And that means removing uh, the personal property contents uh, uh, from the location, putting them on on the curb if if the uh, tenant has not done so by the time required by law. But as you mentioned earlier, that gets significantly complex in the context of uh, manufactured homes because those are not so easily removed. And that gets into your other episode and segment about the statutes detailing the conditions under which a manufactured home might be considered to be deemed abandoned.
1: Yeah, is a text message settlement sufficient? I mean, we've had it happen, hopefully, right? We have it happen sometimes where like, look, we'll give you till, you know, two o'clock tomorrow to meet up with us. And you agree anything is not out there by four o'clock. You you give up, it's abandoned. You give up the home, you give up the stuff. Um, And in the courtesy of this, I will not pursue garnishment of wages or garnishment of tax refund. And And they respond back, you're a jerk, but okay, I'll be there by two deal. Is that sufficient that I now have cover to throw away everything they left over after that point?
2: That's a good question. That can certainly be relevant and admissible evidence. You can certainly introduce those text messages as as evidence to whatever agreement was reached and whatever authority was conferred with respect to disposition of the personal property there. But out of an abundance of caution, I always advise uh, clients to seek out uh, the local statutes because oftentimes there are landlord tenant bill of rights, there are manufactured home community uh, uh, rights in, in the statutes, in the acts that can sometimes grant uh, uh, unit owners, uh, tenants uh, more rights than would otherwise be allowed under those acts and can require notice to be given to them in a certain manner uh, before deeming property to be abandoned or, or, or otherwise disposed of.
1: That's a good, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, the abandoned Housing Act is a pretty robust, slow, expensive process, but the residents do have rights. But, you know, I think some rights, white rights, they can waive. I think it's hard to say they waive them in advance, you know, just because it's in the buried in the lease. But at a minimum, I feel like after they uh, have, you know, already lost the eviction, they're like, okay, fine. You can have the trailer. I don't want it anyway, because I just, all I want is back to demolish it you know, and get it off the property or, you know, get their stuff out of there. I'm going to reuse the home. I want to get their stuff out of there and throw it away. For typically, anything that was of value they've already taken, they've left me, you know, a food, a fridge full of junk and a bunch of dirty clothes and a bunch of mice and dog poop.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that and that goes back to, I think, what you said initially here, and that is that it is a rare Landlord who is able to fully collect upon any monetary judgment obtained or received through the eviction process, and that's why I, I do say that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that in the, any ability and opportunity to work out something with the, the tenant to get them caught up, get them cured, get them reestablished, assuming it is feasible, and assuming that it does not put the uh, the greater community in jeopardy or uh, exposed, uh, then I I do think that it is worth the effort to pick up the phone, reach out, and try and and talk to the tenant. But oftentimes, sometimes the relationship can break down between the property manager and the tenant, the owner and the tenant, and there can be some hostilities there. And sometimes as the attorney, even though I am biased and I am representing the interests of the landlord property uh, manager there, I have found that when I talk to tenants out in the hall Sometimes they just want to be heard by a third party, even though I'm not a neutral uh, a third party. They want they want to be heard, uh, and and they want they want to work something out. But sometimes it's it's hard to swallow pride and 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 do so through uh, the party that, that has been on your case, or has been keeping right. them in line, or, or reminding them of their violations of the rules and regulations. So that, that's another value that that we can add is helping to resolve these matters. Through our, our knowledge and understanding of the process and and what would otherwise uh, uh, be a, a, the burden of the tenant to establish at a disposition there, to hopefully get it resolved in advance and and and, and keep and get the tenant back to paying, um, so that the landlord doesn't have to deal with the mess.
1: Got it. So to clarify too on that, if they don't pay, if they don't, if we, if I get a judgment. And they don't, and I got 10 days and they got to leave and they don't get out. I can't just take them out myself. I have to go back to court and have the sheriff execute a writ of possession or some other action to have the sheriff, you know, quote, keep the peace. My experience, the sheriff doesn't physically drag them out and the sheriff does certainly doesn't drag all their junk out, but the sheriff generally shows up, knocks on the door looks like a sheriff has a gun and says you need to leave now and then they typically listen sometimes they're pissy but they typically listen and they leave the premises and then it's our house right we get to change the locks we get to dispose of their stuff at least put it on the curb for the time being and they don't get they don't get to come back in right
2: Uh, Correct. Now, um, and and there are procedures and our local statute here in Missouri requires the writ of restitution uh, by the sheriff, the writ of execution there to be uh, effectuated and unsuccessful prior to invoking the rights uh, to deem the property to be abandoned um, uh, to change the locks and whatnot. So it does get a little bit more uh, complex. But yes, as, as a generally speaking, after that time period has passed after judgment, the sheriff can come out. And and, and you're right, the, typically the, the tenants, uh, while they might not have gathered their stuff up, and then certainly the property is likely not to be in broom-swept condition, uh, but it, the sheriff does typically help effectuate, um, even if just by means of having an imposing
1: presence there. Right. Okay. Um, what else am I missing? I know we've, we've covered most of the processes, I feel like. Um, Any other next steps? I know there's opportunities to chase chase them for money, which a lot of people don't pursue because it's hard to collect. But how does that process work? And then any other tips or tricks before we go that we're missing here that you want to share?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, after all those processes, after going to court multiple times and all, all those hoops to jump through, a lot of landlords think they're done. Uh, but there's one last trap for the unwary that can sometimes catch landlords by surprise and can have some teeth, some statutory teeth, depending upon what jurisdiction you're in. And that is where a security deposit is at play. There's typically a timeline after uh, uh, possession of the premises, after the final walkthrough, after expiration of the lease, after possession has been rendered to the landlord, wherein the landlord must provide the tenant with an itemization of damages detailing any offsets to the security deposit or refunding the security deposit, if appropriate. Uh, Here in these situations regarding mobile home parks, there are typically expenses Uh, damages incurred uh, upon uh, these eviction type matters. So rarely is the security deposit returned. But if that itemization of damages is not timely provided to the tenant, it can expose the landlord to liability, even in instances in which the landlord is justified in retaining the security deposit in full otherwise. So it is is prudent and, and important to make sure you read through all the statutes Uh, pertaining to the Landlord-Tenant Act and the eviction procedures in your jurisdiction to not fall under that trap for the unwary. Uh, Assuming that the security deposit or any amounts received are are insufficient to satisfy the monetary judgment portion of the eviction proceeding, then the landlord, assuming they have a personal judgment against the tenant, has the option of uh, trying to satisfy that judgment through garnishments, of wages, levies of bank accounts, and even debtors exams, wherein the tenant can be hauled back into court to answer questions under oath pertaining to assets, debts, income, expenses, and the like to try and satisfy that judgment. Once the judgment is satisfied, then the landlord does have a statutory obligation to file a satisfaction of judgment
1: within a certain amount of time. Okay, so let's say that I, I get the eviction, I get possession, but I also get a judgment for $2,000 and I want to go chase them down for that money. Do I, <laughs> do I have to give them additional notice and go back to court and set another court date to do that? Or can I just, with the $2,000 judgment, you know, file on their credit report or something or try to attach to their, send it to their employer or send it to, or try to get a tax refund? How do I practically get the money?
2: Correct, that's a great question. Uh, A lot of that's gonna depend upon local statute and local rules, but generally no. Generally no further notice is required to file a garnishment against uh, earnings or levies against bank accounts or other non-exempt assets. Uh, Now, but prior to doing so, and even prior to filing the lawsuit for eviction, it is prudent to ascertain Uh, whether or not the tenant has filed for bankruptcy relief because you do not want to run afoul of the bankruptcy court's jurisdiction and the bankruptcy court's automatic stay against collection actions that includes not just monetary rent but possession of the premises and you also want to verify that you have complied with the military service members relief act in the event the tenant might be a member of the armed forces Uh, So that your judgment is effective and you're not uh, breaching any rights of the tenant in that
1: respect. Yeah, that's a good point. I've tried to garnish in the past and they've had unemployment income or military income or SSI. And the courts have said, well, you can't touch that money. It's like, that's the only money they have. Well, I went all the way through the process and the only person that won was my attorney. Um, right. I didn't get any money out of the process, right. and, the, and the the bad actor never paid. So, uh, learn that one the hard way as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, my, my I've found that the key to keeping uh, repeat clients and to keeping satisfied clients is to put in that extra work at the at offset, at the outset, to try and and resolve it uh, informally, to try and resolve it before you even go to court. Give the tenant uh, an outlet to to, to voice. Uh, while while still advancing the landlord's cause of action and keeping the time ticking with the court there, because certain uh, there is there is a certain amount of time that it's going to have to pass before the court can adjudicate the matter, just as a practical necessity and a statutory necessity there. So I think one of the biggest value adds that as an attorney I can provide to a client in these situations is reaching out and trying to be a mediator of sorts, even though biased and and and, uh, and partial uh, to the interest of the client there, but trying to get something resolved to avoid that time, energy, and expense of the eviction process.
1: Good stuff. Another question just popped in my head. What if I don't have a written lease? Say, I buy the park today and there are no written leases, and the guy just, you know, John Smith just doesn't pay me. How do I get him out? I'm not going to have a lease to show to the court. I'm not going to have a a tenant. I'm not going to have a tenant ledger other than a bunch of zeros.
2: Yes, that is a, a, and certainly not a best practice, but it does happen. Um, It it does happen for a variety of reasons. Now, oral leases can be enforceable. Statute of frauds typically does not, uh, does require leases for a duration of over one year to be in writing, but uh, there are other causes of action that can arise even uh, for oral leases of that long.
1: In this case, I don't even have an oral lease. I buy the park. There's no, I don't have any oral lease. I don't want the guy. And there's no oral lease to the guy. The previous owner has no records to say this guy's ever paid. The person's name is different than it's been on any previous rent roll or lease delivered. I've had, I've had the problem tenants be like, well, I don't have a lease. You can't evict them. I don't have a lease. And then, of course, they won't sign a lease. They won't uh, file an application for residency. So how do I get out? How do I get them out of there?
2: That's a great question. Typically, those types of situations uh, are uh, covered by statute, and it is a month to month type tenancy upon that arrangement. The absence of a lease agreement, a lot of state statutes. Will provide that an occupier of a premises is going to be a, who is established as their residence is going to be on a month-to-month type basis and depending upon the statutory notice requirements of your jurisdiction that can require either 30 days or sometimes even 60 days notice in the event of mobile home park uh, to evict a, a, an occupier uh, who is not a tenant under an oral or a written uh, lease agreement. So the law does provide for that, but there are notice provisions uh, that are statutorily required, regardless of what the lease says.
1: Got it. All right, what other, anything else do you wanna cover, Ryan, before we go? You know, I think that's
2: that's about it. That's pretty good for a 101 uh, section there. I, the, learned uh, I learned a lot.
1: <laughs> Don't send me but a know, this.
2: <laughs> I, I think the takeaway is uh, that it's it's an unfortunate, uh, but necessary component of uh, the landlord-tenant arrangement here, and I, I think that it is. While it is un, un, unsavory, I, I think it, if it should be done right, in order to preserve the character and integrity of the community at large, uh, you know, I, I think I think the community members like to see rules being enforced, the community being uh, looked after and being upheld, and. And, and, you know, uh, landlords who, who, who are loathsome or who, who maybe haven't established relationships with local council to be able to institute these proceedings on a timely manner are doing a disservice to their general community at large uh, in, in that they're, they're lessening the trust of the community. And I think staying on top of these things while also being fair to the tenants. And I, I think there's also a corresponding side to that coin wherein the landlord and property managers, while being diligent, in, in asserting and protecting the rights of the community and the obligations of the lease, at the same time being reasonable and accommodating with well-meaning and, and good intention tenants who maybe need a little bit more time, maybe need a little bit of period to catch up or or, or maybe can, can do other things to rectify uh, the situation, but uh, I hope I hope what our, our listeners take away from uh, here today is that these matters are complex. There are traps for the unwary, but there are also best practices that can help ease the pain and minimize the the school of hard knock lessons.
1: Great stuff! You clearly have a wealth of knowledge on this. Uh, it reminds me, um, if people want to find you in Kansas and Missouri, um, you can tell them in your email and number here in a minute. But I want to, how I find eviction attorneys and Marcus Brown have a presence is you, you, I've tried just look them up on Google and it often doesn't work. It gets me to respond. So I call the local court or call the circuit court and say, Hey, who's the best attorney for evictions? And sometimes they'll, sometimes they'll tell you, sometimes they'll say, well, I'm not allowed to make recommendations. I say, okay, who do you see down here the most frequently as an attorney for evictions? Oh, that's Ryan White. Okay presumably if he's down there the most frequently he's at least competent if not the best and that's how i find my attorney in a small town or in a market where i don't know somebody but they want to find you ryan how do they reach out to you
2: oh that's good advice for it absolutely uh that and local bar associations can also be great referral sources in the event that you don't have, can't find an attorney that advertises in the jurisdiction Best way to reach me is by email. My email is Ryan, that's R-Y-A-N, at themhplawfirm.com. Shoot me an email with your contact information there. Be glad to chat and discuss and any thoughts or questions, and we can go from there.
1: All right. Thanks again, Ryan. Appreciate it.
2: Excellent. Thank you,
0: for.